I'll turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. As we transition from communion into, into Philippians, like I said a few minutes ago, this section in, in Philippians makes this hardly a transition at all, really. Christ takes center stage once again in this passage. What we're about to look at is a weighty and momentous passage on Jesus Christ. It's, it's so remarkable that we even get a glimpse of what was going through the mind of Jesus in heaven before he came to earth. And for us to see and to understand something of this text, we need the Lord's help. So let's bow again in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you sent him to this earth for, for him then accomplishing the work that you sent him to do. The work that you sent him to do from all eternity. And we've just remembered the suffering of our Lord, his broken body, his blood. We've remembered the price that was paid for our redemption. And now we're about to consider that even in greater depth as we look about, look at this song about Jesus that's included here in this letter. We pray that you would be working in our minds through your Spirit now. Stretch our minds. If need be, expand our minds. Raise our thoughts so that we would have the mind of Christ, which indeed is the aim of this passage. Help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11 is a lofty text. It's going to take us into the inner workings of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. It's a, it's a deep text. It's a profound text. These are important verses to prove that Jesus is, in fact, truly God and truly man. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You hear echoes of Isaiah 45 there. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a lofty text, but it's also a very practical text. These verses are here, and they show up here at this point of the letter, at this spot in Philippians, because they call on us individually, and they call on us as a church to do something. It fits neatly into this section that started way back at chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul instructs the church there to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
How? By being of one mind, by looking to the interests of others, as Jesus did. If anyone needs an illustration of that, exhibit A of someone who looked not only to his own interests, but to the, others, the interests of others, is Jesus Christ. So this is both lofty and it is practical. But it is even more than that. These verses are also meant to bring us to worship. This, especially verses 6 to 11, is thought by most biblical scholars to be an early Christian song, early Christian hymn, that Paul would have picked up and inserted here into this spot of his letter. Of his letter. As I was thinking about this this morning, I couldn't help but think that maybe this was one of the songs that Peter or Paul and Silas were singing as they were in prison in Philippi the first time they visited. And so it's a, it's a song. Songs are meant to inform our minds. They're meant to inform our emotions in order to provoke worship. And that's exactly what this song does. This is a song that helps us look to Jesus Christ and to follow his example. So this is a profound, a practical, a lofty message. This message that drives us to worship. It, it delves into the mysteries of God. These here are exalted thoughts. People who are a lot smarter than me have debated and written about these words for centuries as they've tried to figure out ways of describing how Jesus could be both God and man at the same time. And these verses are going to take us there. They're going to make us think about that great and very important truth that we all need to affirm if we are believers. But Paul wasn't thinking about all of those kinds of deeper questions when he wrote this, and when he added this to his letter. He put this song into the letter because of verse 5. He wants every Christian, every Christian church, to have the mind of Christ. That's what he longs for deeper in everything, than anything else. That the church, as they live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, would have the mind of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, church, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So these words are going to take us right into the mind of Christ. This is holy ground that we're about to look at here. And number two, this also forces us to ask, can we, um, sinners, saved by grace, yes, but sinners nonetheless, can we truly have the mind of Christ? And if so, in what sense? Of course, the answer to that question has to be yes, otherwise Paul wouldn't write this. And so since the answer is yes, in what way? That's what you want to be asking as we work our way through this passage. In what way can we have the mind of Christ? What way can you have the mind of Christ? And then as we all come together, in what way can we collectively have that same mind, that same attitude as it says in some versions? The song can be divided into two sections. After that command there in verse 5, in verses 6 to 8, Christ Jesus is the subject. Just take a look. Verse 5 ends with Christ Jesus, and then verse 6 starts with who, and then it goes on to tell us what he did down to verse 8. And then look at verse 9. It shifts there to God as the subject in light of what Jesus did. Therefore, God exalted him, and so forth. I've called these two sections Christ, Christ's descent and Christ's ascent. 
This is a song about Jesus Christ's humility, his descent, and about his exaltation, his ascent. He goes down of his own volition, and then he gets raised up by God the Father. You've probably all heard the saying, what goes up must come down. Newton's third law of gravity. But in the case of Jesus here, he goes down and therefore he's raised up. What goes down in the case of Christ must go up. And so it is for believers, by the way. We want to be exalted, we must be humble. Well, the first half of this Christ hymn, you'll notice as we go through it, as we work our way through it, has sudden drops in altitude. Have you ever been on a plane and felt those sudden drops? Those always seem to me like my body suddenly goes down, but my stomach is not as quick to follow. Ever felt that? result is that your stomach ends up at your throat, where it was not created to be. At its worst, you might discover then that your hand is reaching for a paper bag in the front seat and then placing said bag over your mouth and then doing some other things. Well, in Philippians 2, 6-8, this hymn about Jesus describes sudden drops of altitude. But the wonder of the first half of the song is the, the part that brings us to our knees in astonishment and ultimately in worship is that Jesus chooses this for himself. Jesus goes down willingly. He goes down voluntarily. So let's see there where he starts. Verse 6. Though he was in the form of God. Stop right there. We start with Jesus. And this is before Christmas happened. This gives us a peek into the pre-incarnate Jesus. Jesus before he came in flesh. And I say that because it's not until we get to end of verse 7 where it says that he was born. Verse 8 says, being found in human form. So this is before that. We don't think a whole lot about Jesus before he was born. But this takes us back there. Or better yet, it takes us up there. Even before he came to earth as a baby, Jesus was in the form of God. Jesus appeared as God. He was truly God. Now remember, Paul wants Christians in the church at Philippi to have this mind among themselves, which is theirs in Christ Jesus. He's about to tell us, Jesus' pre-Christmas attitude of mind. And what was that? What was going on in the mind of Jesus during eternity past? Before he came down to earth as the God-man? Well, this is going to be sacred ground here. We're about to enter into the mind of Christ, the Son of God, while he enjoyed the delights of heaven. Especially that relationship between God the Father and God the Son. This is where Paul wants to take us, to show us how to look out for the interests of others. Remember, that's the question we're asking here. Well, we'll see three ways that Christ's mind worked in verses 6 to 8. The first is that, though Christ, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. 
So the great assumption here is that Jesus is God. This fact, like I said, is essential to our Christianity. This is something we all must believe. This is part of every confession. Jesus is truly God. Jesus was and always has been in the form of God. But Paul's point here in Philippians is that Jesus does not act in a way that we might expect. There's a surprise twist here. The key word is though. Though, even though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality a thing to be grasped. We might expect someone who is in the form of God to grasp onto his rights as God. That's what people will do. Back then in the Greek world, that's what the contrast is being made here, the Greek world in the Roman Empire, there'd be no doubt about this. If they could get any kind of advantage for themselves, their philosophers told them to grab onto it. Don't pass it up. No questions asked. Grab onto the opportunity. Grab onto the advantage. That would be expected. And it's no different today, is it? We live in a dog-eat-dog world. Everyone's trying to move up the ladder, trying to grasp on to, to any advantage they can even if it's a small one. Yet Jesus, notice those two words in verse 6. Jesus did not. Jesus did not. He did not exploit his godhood for his own selfish advantage. Even though he had every opportunity, he was in the form of God after all. He was equal with God, yet he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's that kind of thinking, Paul's saying, that we should have, going back to verse 5, among ourselves. We have a great identity, a privileged identity. We are all children of God through adoption. We are all sons and daughters of God. God has given us the right, John 1 tells us, to be called children of God. It's an amazing privilege and a right that we all have, not earned, but a right that has been given to us by God's grace. But the reason we have that privileged position is not to advance our selfish desires for power. It's the exact opposite. If we have the mind of Christ, we aren't looking to grab opportunities for our own advantage. When we all collectively have the mind of Christ among ourselves, we will look for opportunities to advance the advantage of others. Notice the bit of a trend in some church circles lately where people are encouraged to declare their identity. Declarations like, I'm a child of the King, nothing can stand against me. Those kinds of things, while true, having the mind of Christ doesn't mean we go around making those kinds of declarations. We might have to declare it to ourselves from time to time when we have lack of assurance or when we experience doubt. But Jesus never asserted his rights, even though he could have. Having the mind of Christ is to take on a humble posture to stop talking about ourselves, to seek opportunities to serve. And that's where this song goes next. He did not account, did not account equality a thing to be grasped, but verse 7, he emptied himself. 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. What in the world does that mean? How, what did Jesus empty himself of? Did he become less of something that he once was? Well, this is another one of those profound thoughts that's hard to figure out exactly what he means. But I like how one writer put it. He said, Jesus is not losing anything of what he was, but he is taking to himself what he was not. In that way, to empty himself is not subtraction, but addition. And you can see that, actually, in the very next words in the sentence. He emptied himself by taking. He didn't empty himself by subtracting. He emptied himself by taking. Do you see that there? But take note of a couple of other things. One, notice again that Jesus is doing this. He's volunteering. He's doing this to himself willingly. He emptied himself. And then, let's go back to our elevation picture. Descending and ascending. This started with Jesus before Christmas. In his eternal existence, before he came to earth, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But now we come to Jesus as God incarnate, as God in flesh. We, we're now at Christmas. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. He was in the form of God, but now he takes the form of of a slave, of a servant. So just think about even that word born. And if there's any children that are in here above age seven, seven and over that are still here that are not in children's church, this is a good thing for you to remember. When you think about baby Jesus being born in a manger, just remember that Jesus, unlike us, was alive before he was born. If you want to know how that can be, just ask your parents. No, I'm kidding. You can come and talk to me about that. I'd love to tell you more about that. Jesus was alive before he was in the womb of Mary. Jesus is special and unique in that way. You, you can't say that about anyone else. Jesus always was the Son of God. But now Jesus takes the form of a servant, of a slave. This is incredible. This is a connection back to verse 5. He comes down from the throne room of heaven where he exists as God the Son in eternal harmony with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, but he empties himself of all those divine privileges to take the form of a servant. He is the servant that we read about in Isaiah 45, and Isaiah 53, actually all the way from Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 55. Israel is called the servant there, but Israel failed in its task. And the servant all comes together in this one person. This is the mind of Christ that Paul is saying we should have amongst ourselves. The commentator Matthew Harmon puts it so well and so, so succinctly. He says, Never did someone so great, never did someone so great leave behind so much in order to do something so astonishing as Jesus Christ did. Brothers and sisters, we cannot ever do what Jesus did in, to in totality, but the takeaway is that when we function in the church, we need to be willing, as Jesus said, to empty ourselves and to take on the mind of a servant. 
Since you're a Christian, you are in Christ. Since you're in Christ, you can have this attitude, this, this mind amongst each other, which is in Christ Jesus. And again, this was and is super countercultural. This is radical. This is not insisting on your privilege. Once again, it's the very opposite. In Paul's day, it did talk about, they sometimes had these Greek gods, these Roman gods that would um, take the form of humans. You think of Zeus or Hermes, if, if you're into Greek mythology. But they would never, ever come as slaves. They demand worship. And yet here is Christ, and he comes as a servant. This is the mind of Christ that we ought to have amongst ourselves. Servant mindset. And going right along with that, it's an attitude of humility. And to see what it means to have humility, our song goes even further down in this amazing portrait of Christ, this this Christ song. Verse 8, being found in human form, in human appearance. If you looked at Jesus, you could see a human, a man. He humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Every word here is so out there for someone who is in the form of God, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This song that started on such a high note in heaven just comes crashing down here. If a songwriter could put this song to music, they might put a dead stop right here. A time of dead silence, like not even a musical interlude in between the words. Just think of this descent from verse 6. He went from the form of God to the form of a slave to becoming obedient. By that it means God obeying the Father perfectly from from birth to death. And then to death. But but not just an ordinary death. Even death on a cross. Uh, The cross was the absolute worst, the most excruciating, the most disgraceful, the most shameful way to die as people were paraded there on the sides of the Roman roads to be shamed. They weren't paraded, they were just hung there for everyone to see and to mock. His was not a funeral with honors. His was a death of maximum shame and extreme humiliation. Yet those words, he humbled himself. Jesus himself was complicit in this. And not only was he complicit, he chose this for himself. Here is the mind of Christ that Paul summons us to have amongst ourselves. Are you willing to suffer humiliation for the good of others? Are you willing to follow Jesus by denying yourself and by carrying his cross? Are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing even to die? Obviously, we cannot die for others, other people's sins. Only Jesus could atone for sin. But Paul calls, us, calls on us to have this mind, this attitude, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, going back to chapter 2, verse 3, in humility, counted others as more significant than himself. Looking to the interest of others. So, our child song, come, or our Christ song, comes to a screeching halt 
There's no more singing. There's just silence. Jesus is dead and on a cross, no less. But the song isn't over. The song takes Jesus all the way down, step by step, from the heights of heaven, where he was eternally in communion with the Father as very God himself, to the humiliation of being found as a man, succumbing to death, even to death on a cross. And the main point there is that Jesus chose this for himself in obedience to the Father and in the interest of others. But I'll say it again, the song is not over. Jesus does not stay there. This song is going to make a sudden crescendo. And it's not even a crescendo, it just goes from quiet to loud, from pianissimo to fortissimo. This song is going to get loud in a hurry. It went down step by step, but it's going to go up past. The song is like getting on the elevator at the CN Tower. We're going right to the top. <laughs> no stops in between. This is not a plane, but a rocket. We were on a slow descent, but this is a quick ascent. And so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but look at verse 9, and notice the elevation words here. Therefore God has highly exalted him, right up. Not only exalted, but highly exalted, where he, Isaiah describes him as being high and lifted up. And he's bestowed on him the name that is above every name. There is no name higher than the name of Jesus. He had sunk to the lowest of lows, but it was all part of the mission that he willingly accepted from the Father. We could say he sunk himself to the lowest of lows for the interest of others and for the glory of God the Father. But because of that, God raises him to the highest of highs. He brings Jesus back up to his presence where he appears then high and lifted up. And the result of all that, the result both his going down and his being raised up is that Jesus will be worshipped and proclaimed. He is exalted, verse 10, so that, here's why, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is God, that he is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. God raises up Jesus higher than we could ever imagine to such a height that everyone is going to bow in worship and everyone will acknowledge that he is Lord. And when it says every knee and every tongue, it's not just talking about every believing tongue, every believing knee. We already worship now. But this is talking about every single knee and every single tongue in all creation, no exception. Those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, all will bow to Jesus and will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether they believed in him or not. So just one important side note that goes along with that. This, this is an implied warning here in this exalted text for those that are not trusting in Christ for their salvation and not confessing him as their Lord now. Does that describe anyone you know? Does that describe anyone in this room today? You don't want to be found under the earth when you're bowing to Jesus. At that point, it's going to be too late to change your location. You will bow to Jesus. You will acknowledge him as Lord. 
but from a distance. Friend, don't wait on this. Confess your sins. Trust Christ. The Bible says, an interesting parallel in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and here now, at this present time, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. A great promise. Connecting the Old Testament promises as well. That you will be saved if you confess Jesus as Lord. If you want to know more about that, again, I'd be glad to talk to you about that. But for those of us who are already part of the church, the application here is clear. We have to keep looking to Christ. We don't just look to Christ when we're saved. We have to keep looking to Christ so that we know what kind of, how to think, what kind of mind we ought to have, where our minds ought to go. We have to look precisely at the mind of Christ, especially as we seek to live in fellowship and partnership with each other. The church will only function as Jesus meant for it to function back when he purchased the church with his own blood, only as we take our cues from the thoughts of Jesus and as we consider the interests of others above our own, as Jesus did. God left this exalted song and these glorious this glorious truth about Christ here to encourage greater humility among us. To encourage greater sacrificial acts of service among us. And so when you truly grasp who Jesus is, you will serve others joyfully with the mind of Christ to the glory of God the Father. May God strengthen us to that end.